One, two, three, go. Hello, and welcome to International Security Off the Page. On today's episode, we are talking about the norms and practices of civil-military relations within the U.S. I'm Morgan Kaplan, the Executive Editor of International Security, and we will be speaking with Dr. Risa Brooks, the author of the recent IS article, Paradoxes of Professionalism, Rethinking Civil-Military Relations in the United States. And a little later, we'll go off the page with retired General Joseph Fattel, a non-resident senior fellow here at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center, and also the former commander of U.S. Central Command and U.S. Special Operations Command. BelferCenter.org slash off the page is where you can find past episodes as well as supplemental reading materials. It is also where you can subscribe to Off the Page on your favorite podcast platform. Risa Brooks is the Alice Chalmers Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University and a non-resident senior associate in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Risa, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. So tell us a little bit about why you've written this article about rethinking civil military relations in the U.S. The article really focuses on the norms of professionalism that are prevalent in the U.S. military today, especially in the officer corps. And those norms reflect the arguments of Samuel Huntington in his seminal book, The Soldier and the State. And I wrote the article for two reasons. First of all, while there have been critiques of Samuel Huntington's arguments in Soldier and the State, there really hasn't been a full comprehensive assessment of sort of all the aspects of those norms. So I wanted to get that on the table. But more fundamentally and more practically, there are problems with those norms that are especially relevant today. And I felt that we really needed to address those to get out there and become more aware of the kinds of issues that are occurring in civil military relations in the U.S. today. So Risa, can you tell us a little bit more about what these Huntingtonian norms are, which I believe the phrase used for it is objective control. What are these norms of objective control, these norms of professionalism? Absolutely. So let me just start with the concept of objective control, which Huntington argued was sort of the best way to both secure civilian control of the military and ensure its effectiveness in armed conflict. And he sort of advocated this model for that reason. And at its core, it envisions that there's sort of this clear line between the civilian and military spheres, that civilians are in charge of policy decisions and deciding political objectives in relation to the use of force. And the military really focuses on implementing those decisions and cultivating its expertise in the management of violence. So there's this separation of spheres idea. And we find even when people don't associate Huntington's name with it, they're very familiar with this idea of this separation. And that's sort of the normative foundation that we see in the contemporary U.S. officer corps. Now, It has specific sort of behavioral implications, what Huntington argues with objective control. And let me just sort of outline those. There are four of them. 
And one of them is that there's this premise and belief that military and political activity are easily separated and should remain separated. So there are political decisions and there are military decisions and they don't much interact with each other. This idea has been roundly critiqued, especially by Elliot Cohen in his 2002 book, Supreme Command, and by others. And that's sort of the first contention. There's three others, though. The second is that Huntington supports this transactional view of military advice. So the idea that because there are these two different domains, the civilians get together, figure out what they want to do in war, they come up with some guidance, they go over and tell the military, okay, this is what our objective is. Military go come up with some options. The military takes that guidance, comes up with three options, comes in the room, delivers it. Civilians maybe say, okay, tweak it here and there, but it's not a collaborative, interactive process as Huntington envisions it. And those norms sort of shape our understanding of what contemporary strategic assessment and how the military and political leadership interact today. Third, one of the ideas that's central in Huntington is that the military really needs to exist in its own separate sphere away from society and not just away from politics, and that its members inhabit a worldview that's distinctive and better than its civilian counterparts. So at the very end of the book, there's this discussion of how West Point sort of abuts the city of Highland Falls and that how Highland Falls should look to West Point and emulate the values that are held among the cadets there. And so it's sort of this supremacist idea of military culture over civilian culture. Fourth, the biggest one and the one that I talk about a lot in the article is the idea that military should abstain from all that is political. And what's important about this is that it's not just abstaining from political activism or behaviors that might subvert or affect civilian control. It's even intellectual. It's the idea that if if a problem comes up that has political overtones or ramifications, you pass that off to the civilians. And that disengagement or that apprehension about thinking and engaging in politics is really central to Huntington and also really destructive, as you might be able to anticipate right off the bat. One thing that's fascinating about your article is that in a way you're arguing, it's not just that Huntington is wrong or Huntington is misleading in the nature of these norms, but that there are actual paradoxes built into Huntington's own norms that actually make the exact type of relationship Huntington was hoping for kind of unravel. It's like the seeds of its own unraveling is within the theory itself. Tell us a little bit about these paradoxes of professionalism that you found within Huntington's work and what that means. Yeah, so you're exactly right. There are these internal tensions such that the behavior that Huntington says his norms prescribe is actually undermined by other things that it supports, other behaviors. And so, yes, the article is organized around these three paradoxes. And the first is that while those norms promote abstention from partisan political activity, they also enable it. You know, Huntington is very clear that the military stays out of politics in all respects, but the tautology he creates, the idea that professionals are apolitical and therefore being a military professional means that you are by definition apolitical, that fosters a lack of introspection and reflection and creates what I call blind spots. So there's a lack of awareness of the way that one is actually behaving in a political way that is encouraged and supported by Huntingtonian norms. The second is that Huntingtonian norms 
both support and undermine civilian control of the military. Now, in the most common meaning of civilian control, it just comes down to does the military follow orders? But if we step back and think more broadly, civilian control means that the military acts in a way that supports and promotes civilian policy preferences. And those norms undermine it by first through this transactional advisory process, but also by creating a culture averse to civilian oversight of the military. The third paradox is that Huntingtonian norms support military effectiveness, especially operational and tactical effectiveness, but they undermine strategic effectiveness. And they do this principally because of that transactional advisory process, but also because of the way the mindset that Huntington supports undermines a sense of accountability and responsibility for the strategic level of conflict so that the military is leaving it to the civilians to kind of figure out how to connect strategy to politics and is sort of washing its hands of its responsibility to ensure success in war. Can you tell us a little bit about why these paradoxes are particularly important today? So I think the first one, sort of promoting political activity is important because there's evidence that a political norm that Huntington says is so robust isn't really working very well. There's all sorts of sort of different studies today that are showing that many military personnel really don't believe in those norms, that they think they should be able to criticize civilian leaders, that they should be able to engage in public political expression whenever they want to, those sorts of things. Also, those norms matter today, and the reason we need to view them critically is that there's these overt efforts to politicize the military by the civilian political leadership, the president. And the military is completely unprepared to handle that. Those norms to me to be more developed and robust to prepare them. And I'll just point a quick example to the recent events in Lafayette Square with General Milley accompanying Donald Trump across the square for the photo op in front of the famous historical church holding the Bible. Milley later apologizes for that. But what that episode shows us in a microcosm is sort of the lack of preparation that the norms provide for dealing with civilian politicization of the military. The last reason we should really be paying attention to this is we're coming to this moment of reckoning with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've seen remarkable social mobilization against engaging in conflicts like that. And people are starting to ask questions, you know, why did this happen? And so one of the answers to those questions is civil military relations and some of the norms and the way that they undermined strategic assessment and the relationship between the military and political leadership in making key decisions in those wars. So what are the big policy implications? What are the big policy takeaways having understood these paradoxes in the existing norms of civil military relations? Yeah. So I think one of them is that one needs to really rethink what the sort of basis or foundation of military professionalism should be today. And while Huntington's ideas are really dominant, there's been both before and since other conceptions of professionalism. Huntington comes out of a debate and he wins that debate, basically, but we need to revisit and rethink that. And part of that needs to involve a more constructive engagement and understanding 
of the military's role in politics and understanding that this sort of hear no evil, see no evil approach to politics is really not serving either the military in maintaining its nonpartisan ethic or the country in sort of ensuring its success in its armed conflicts overseas. Fantastic. Well, Risa, I only have one more question for you, and that is, are you ready? Am I ready? To go off the page. (laughs) I am ready. If you enjoy listening to Off the Page, you'll enjoy reading our quarterly journal, International Security, which is edited and sponsored by the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School and published by the MIT Press. To learn more about the journal, please check out belfercenter.org slash is. Joseph Patel is a retired four-star general in the United States Army. He previously served as commander of U.S. Central Command and U.S. Special Operations Command, and he is currently a non-resident senior fellow here at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center, and he is also the president and CEO of Business Executives for National Security. General Vitell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. So we're particularly lucky to have you here as a retired four-star general, someone who's served for 40 years. And I imagine these issues of civil-military relations are something you've thought deeply about over the course of your career. I'm curious, having read Dr. Brooks's article, can you tell us a little bit about your, your reaction to the piece, whether it rung true or what elements of it you know, you've experienced and, and you feel are either accurate or perhaps contrary to your experience. Yeah, thanks. Well, first off, it's, it's as I said, it's great to be with you. I, I really enjoyed reading the article and uh, obviously a very interesting topic and it's particularly relevant right now. So, I mean, that caught my attention. And as you mentioned, I mean, as someone who's had the opportunity to be a combatant commander and operate at a pretty high level within the Department of Defense and, you know, within our government, uh, I, I definitely definitely understood everything that's being discussed in there. I I really do agree with Dr. Brooks' conclusion that, you know, it may be time to look at a a different model for this. And I found myself, as as we went through this, I'm not sure I really had an opinion on that as I began to read the article, but as I got to the end of it, I think I agreed with her conclusion that there may be a better model that we need to be looking at. You know, when we were thinking about this conversation, we were thinking there are potentially multiple ways to talk about the state of civil-military relations in the United States today, one at the level of the relationship between the military and civilian leadership, the other between the U.S. military and American society, and then, of course, a conversation about intramilitary norms about politics and civil-military relations. And so I thought it'd be good potentially to start with what is the current state of politics within the military? To what extent are those coming through the military being trained to understand these issues, but also what is the current understanding of what is appropriate behavior in the forms of politics in the military? Well, yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, I think, you know, obviously, as we enter into an election year, and we've been through a variety of these, I mean, I think there's lots of reminders along the way that we generally don't use the uniform, we don't use our position and rank to try to take positions associated with particular candidates or particular parties. That certainly is something I I think that virtually everybody in uniform is exposed to, you know, officers through their various commissioning sources come with differing degrees of knowledge on the topic. And of course, there are 
opportunities through the course of, uh, of your career to really take a little bit of time to think about these kinds of things. I think the challenge comes is this is not necessarily a day-to-day topic. I, I never found it to be that way. Hmm. Um, uh, it's certainly something that we thought about as I got more senior and operated at higher levels. It's certainly something that I was thinking about, but it wasn't, uh, and, and I would talk with my contemporaries about you know, occasionally, but it's not an everyday topic in terms of the things that are going on. So, you know, I think there is a general belief in uniform in the military that, you know, we try to comport ourselves in a, in a way that portrays ourselves as unbiased, as even keeled, if you will, not beholden to one particular uh, party or viewpoint over another, uh, that we try to stay focused on providing best military advice and, you know, to some extent, remain within the lane. And that's, I think, the way that, you know, kind of the intra-military politics are. Those officers who have strayed outside of that have generally, you know, incurred the wrath of some of their contemporaries on that and have been characterized or viewed as being political or taking political positions. So I think that's kind of the state uh, of how I would look at it in, in uniform, how I looked at it when I was in uniform. So just to sort of add a little to that question or provide additional perspective, I really respect and see lots of evidence for this commitment to sort of a nonpartisan ethic. And I do think that is really deeply ingrained and something that especially people who are making it, you know, general and flag officers are really thinking about that as they move through their careers at different times. Having said that, I think that there's probably opportunities to think and do more on that and to think about what that means in practice and how that translates into particular incidents or events. So one way to think about being nonpartisan or staying out of sort of partisan competition is, you know, the goal should be or a goal is to minimize your effect on sort of controversies within the civilian space, whether it's policy debate debates or whether it's partisan competition or partisan campaigns to sort of minimize through one's statements and actions the effects on those things. And sort of that's how I would think about what being nonpartisan is or sort of being apolitical in the positive sense would mean. And I I think that that's not controversial, right? What I would add to that is that how that's interpreted sometimes is to mean that one should not act that one should try to sort of disengage and withdraw. But sometimes, and I wonder if you agree with this, General Votel, it might require actually engaging with politics and actually taking action to have the effect of minimizing one's impact on politics. So, for example, Chairman Milley's recent apology for his being in the picture at Lafayette Square with the president, you know, that was an overt action and a decision he made to help push the military and him in particular out of politics. And so sometimes I worry that nonpartisan and staying out of politics means neutral and quiet. Neutrality means quiet and inaction, but it really requires sort of political engagement and political acumen to really maintain that position. Yeah, I, I agree with you on what you're saying. And I think you said it probably better than I did. I like the idea of, you know, your the concept of minimizing effects. I think that is what I'm implying in my comments, you know, that you, you conduct yourself in a 
manner that, you know, it's your professional responsibilities don't become beholden to any particular political influence and that you do try to minimize the impacts. I think the challenge, though, for people like me, I certainly felt this challenge. I think it, you know, it could certainly exist today and has existed for a long time is that a well-defined, very uh, black and white definition of apolitical is very difficult to apply here. The military, and particularly senior officers, especially operate in a political environment. There is no doubt about that. We are we are nominated. We are confirmed. We are nominated by our president. We are confirmed by Congress. That is a political process. The Department of Defense is part of the executive branch that is led by uh, the president as the commander in chief as an elected leader that is you know has represented a particular uh, political party. We testify in Congress, and part of that is is an aspect of adversarial questioning where you have both sides questioning, angling for to support their political viewpoints in that. And the challenge for the military leader in that is to walk that fine line and to be respective of the institution, but do it in a manner that, as you said, minimizes the impacts here in terms of that. You're going to participate in policy discussions. And that happens. That's part of it when you do this. And of course, war is an extension of politics by other means. I mean, that is the Clausewitzian definition of it here. So we have to recognize that you are operating in an environment that is political. But within that, uh, I think it is not, it is trying to not be biased uh, to a particular political point. It is about how you comport yourself in that and how you work your way through the interaction between military and civilians in this and how you, in, in your words, minimize the effects of, of the political environment and the military advice that you are providing. Yeah, absolutely. I I can imagine that requires a lot of introspection and thinking at certain times how to sort of navigate politics. And, you know, hopefully one of the goals of the article or one of the things I was hoping would come out of it is the idea that this shouldn't be the kind of thing that's sort of left at the margins to be thinking about when you're especially a senior officer, that developing that sort of judgment and acumen and awareness of one's role in domestic domestic politics and the military as an institution's role in in domestic politics and the way that military activity sort of interacts with and is influenced by domestic politics. Those are things that are sort of central to really doing one's job thoroughly and well. As an outsider, those seem to be very important things. And that was sort of my goal is to say, we need to think more about this. And maybe I'll just add one other thing that I really appreciate about what you just said, and that is... I'm coming to the point where I think that we need to start from the assumption that the military is a political institution and military leaders are inevitably, whether they choose to or not, actors in domestic politics. And that it's only by sort of acknowledging that as a starting point that we can begin to figure out exactly how to act and what the sort of standards of good ethical behavior is. And that if we start from this idea that the military can be kind of sterilized from politics and sort of is removed from it, that's just going to get into a whole lot of problems and avoid really dealing with the hard issues. And so I, you're, you're sort of bringing that up and sort of putting that front forward, I think is really helpful in, in moving that conversation along. Yeah, I have to, thanks. I, I would characterize it as being actors in domestic politics. I would describe it as more as actors in a political theater, frankly, is kind of how I would do it, uh, how I would think about that. But more to the point I wanted to just comment on is the idea of the discussion, the education, everything that goes along with this. I, I do think one of the areas where the military should do better in this is in kind of the 
the education and the professional discussion of this that should take place as, uh, as officers move forward. And I'm not, it's not absent. It takes place. A lot of it takes place informally. And it comes up on a regular enough basis to do that. But as I reflected and reread your article again yesterday in preparation for this, I mean, you have done a great job of laying out a variety of different viewpoints on this. I can't say that I ever had a discussion like that while I was in uniform where somebody said, okay, let's start off with Huntington and then let's talk about these other things along the way. And you just didn't view it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, many officers will go through a commissioning source and they'll get some of this. They'll go to a staff college, you know, 10, 11 years in it and they'll get more of this. They'll go to the war college, you know, 18 to 20 years in and they'll get some more of this. And if they're selected for general officers, they'll get into some courses where they'll have an opportunity. The, really the first, I think, big discussions that probably a lot of officers have about this particular topic and, and the practical sense really is when they become a general fly officer. And that's where I think you see a lot of these discussions. So we certainly can and should do a better job of promoting that discussion, promoting the education on this thing earlier and more frequently through an officer's career. All my colleagues in PME institutions would be thrilled to hear you say that because I think that a lot of us, and I'm very sympathetic to to what they do and feel it's very important, really believe that it needs to be done more at war colleges, for example, and at different levels of PME, but also that needs to be a starting point for a conversation and a sort of level of awareness and engagement yeah. even more broadly. This is absolutely critical. And, you know, one of the great opportunities that was always afforded to me, particularly as a four-star commander, whether I was at SOCOM or a CENTCOM, was the opportunity to get out and go talk to students at the war colleges, all, all the war colleges, Air Force, uh, Army, the National War College, as well as going out and talking to general officers as they went through some of the unique general officer education, whether it was a capstone course or the pinnacle course or a joint warfighting course. And one of the topics that I tried to talk about was this idea of how you communicate to the civilian leadership. How, it is, how is it that you provide advice to them? And, uh, and we spent a lot of time talking about the importance of developing relationships, about the importance of developing communication techniques and recognizing how the people, particularly the civilian leaders that you're communicating, how do they receive information? You know, I worked for several secretaries of defense. Each of them received information differently. It was my obligation to understand how that was so that I was communicating effectively to them. And once I figured that out, then, then you know, I was better serving them and I was better serving my organization. But it's absolutely critical. I know in your article, you cited one of my good friends, Bill Rapp, who yeah. has done extensive research and discussion on this. And and when he was the commandant at the Army War College, I think had a very refined, well-developed way for talking about this with students. We need more of that. We need more of that institutionalized in our processes. This conversation is fascinating and it brings up another side of the story, which is education in having open conversations early on with service members and officers about what it means to be political. What does it mean to understand civil military relations, that just gets at one side of the puzzle. But of course, right, it takes two to tango. And I think something that, you know, I've seen in other conversations on Twitter and other areas is the fact that civilian leaders and also American society in general itself doesn't have good understanding of appropriateness and inappropriateness in civil military relations. What does it mean to educate civilian leaders on how to have appropriate relations with the military. 
So I think it's really an odd thing how much folks who study and think about civil military relations spend thinking about the military side of that equation and not thinking about the civilian side because we don't really understand exactly what, say, even civilian oversight means in any really practical, you know, sense. We have a vague appreciation for what civilian leadership is supposed to do, like listen to military advisors, not shut the door, things like that. But it's really pretty primitive. So I agree that we need to definitely be doing a lot more to understand what it means to play the role of the civilian in the civil-military relations equation. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. You see examples of this all the time, where you see people that are in the Department of Defense, civilians, or in government who have governmental experience, who have been around the military, who have come to understand the role a little bit, and they play, I think, a very helpful role in understanding kind of the basis of the institutions uh, and what the roles are in this. I think the challenge becomes as you introduce more and more appointees, political appointees into the process. And again, I'm not against political appointees. That's the system. That's how it works. But it, it does beg for the idea that there should be, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about education of officers, that there has to be uh, some opportunity for education or discussion with the civilian leadership as well in terms of their understanding of the military-civilian relationship and how they interact back and forth. As a military man, somebody who spent a lot of time in uniform, I, I think we always looked at that as our responsibility was, you know, and I just gave you an example. When I talked about the three secretaries that I served under as a four-star commander, um, you know, I, I saw it as my responsibility to adapt to them, the civilian control of the military. And I think that's the, the right approach. But there does have to be, I think, a complementary aspect to this that encourages uh, the civilian leadership to understand that as well and what their role in making sure that it is a dialogue, that there is an interaction uh, back and forth over this. And I'm not sure that always takes place, frankly. Yeah, I would just add a couple things to that. One thing that I've worried about in the current period is that as a substitute for sort of better education and preparation, maybe for political appointees, it's now becoming, or I worry that it's becoming a, a bit of a litmus test that one should have had prior military service mm -hmm. to serve in one of those roles, or even be a career retired military officer in policy roles. And I don't think that that's the solution because folks who've had civilian careers who understand policy, policy making, navigating bureaucracy, all of those things, and are, you know, chosen by elected officials shouldn't be closed out of those roles because they don't have military service or that background. And I do worry that that's how we're solving the problem. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would just add is that I think from the, from the outside, you're a new civilian appointee, you go into the Pentagon, you're dealing, you know, you're dealing with really accomplished career in many cases, you know, military officers, not always, but in many cases. And that's got to be a formidable thing. You know, these are folks yeah. that experience the Department of Defense has remarkable power and presence in American society, um, almost to, you know, I would say beyond what its really appropriate role is, which is an important role, but it's become almost a mythical organization and entity in American society. And so, and the microcosm of that is that you're dealing with people that have that behind them and you don't have that experience. And I think acknowledging that there's this sort of structural dynamic is something that's a piece of it that I don't hear often addressed in that way. 
Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with you. I, I think that is uh, that is certainly certainly the case. It can be very intimidating, and uh, the institution can be very intimidating in terms of what it does. And so there has to be some acknowledgement on both sides of that. I also agree with your comment on the fact that it, I, I don't think there is a requirement that civilians who are serving in the, the defense or the national security environment must have uniform service. I, as I'm just sitting here thinking about the people that I've served with, a number of whom have just recently stepped out of uh, government service and none of them had uniform service but that did not diminish the contributions or the value I think that we that we placed on them because in many cases they had good experience either you know in the Department of Defense over at Congress serving on some of the oversight committees over there or you know in, in some cases down in our combatant commands where they understood well what was happening and understood the environment that they were operating in so I don't think that it is requirement and good people can seem to have a way of figuring it out and and understanding the environment in which they're operating. So moving the conversation a bit more closely to how the military engages uh, the broader society itself, it seems like social media acts as an informal platform for military and civilian engagement. How do things like Twitter and Facebook complicate existing norms of civil military relations in politics? I won't describe this perfectly here, but it's this, the ambiguous nature of the virtual environment, I think, adds confusion to people about the accountability that is associated with this and the officialness that goes along with this. And I think for a long period of time, we looked at it as some other domain that wasn't official, that didn't really constitute anything. And so I think you've seen people have used that space in some regards to make political comments or support some something here or like this person's political viewpoint here, thinking there would not be any many repercussions of that. And of course, I think what we've now seen is that certainly everything that's on the internet, anything that's posted or liked or anything else, all has the ability to be recalled and be held accountable for it. So I, I think better understanding of that is important. I mean, I think if there's one thing we've learned over the last four years of this administration is uh, the role that something like tweeting takes. Uh, I, I would say we were probably a little bit more dis- dismissive of that in 2016 than we probably were by 2019 or 2020 in terms of the role that that was playing in communicating to the American people and the implications that had on us. So something that we thought was, you know, was kind of this ambiguous virtual environment really does take on a a more official aspect. And that, I think, is something that we probably had some difficulty coming to grips with. You know, for some Americans, this is the only way they're ever interacting with the U.S. military. And if they see partisan speech, contemptuous words, how are they interpreting that? They're thinking, oh, look, the military is on so-and-so's side. And so, you know, it's actually pretty urgent that that be taken up and addressed and dealt with. So what do we think about the role of retired officers in making more formal public statements on politics and national security issues? You know, for example, not in social media, but, you know, in more respected media outlets, more formal public statements. Yeah, I've written several times and, you know, there generally has been a tradition that we don't do that, that, that that's somewhat viewed as a violation of that. I, I'm not so sure I subscribe to that. I don't immediately associate a public commentary with the violation of some kind of professional ethic. And, you know, in, in my example, I'm the president and CEO of Business Executives for National Security. So I'm in this area. I'm associated with the Belfer Center. I'm associated with the Middle East Institute. I'm associated 
associated with the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. I'm associated with, you know, the Center for Ethics and Rural Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. So, I mean, this is an area of some interest to me. So I've tried to tried to stay in that. I think what's important, though, is that at least I'll just speak from my example. In my writing, I, I've tried to exercise, I think, in my view, a level of care for the things that I'm writing about, meaning that I'm avoiding personal attacks. I'm trying not to critique fellow colleagues or former colleagues, people that have followed behind me. I'm trying not to make things harder for the military to do their job. And I'm trying to focus on adding clarity, information, or understanding to what are oftentimes very difficult, complex, ambiguous topics. And so, and again, I'm just talking about myself, but I my point is, is that I do think there's a place for former military officials to write, to communicate, to talk. Uh, I think a lot of it comes down to how they do it, as is the case in many things. But I do think it is a healthy part of the process. I think one of the strongest arguments for sort of having retired officers speak about issues is that, you know, they have experience and insight through their long careers and can contribute to public debate. And that can be enriching. And especially if it's done appropriately or, you know, with sort of in a very self-conscious way, as you described, that can be really positive. I think that there are two sort of potential pitfalls to keep in mind, though. And one is not is just sort of the larger context in which the military has such remarkable social esteem and so few other institutions do these days. And so the effect is that it's not just contributing to a dialogue sometimes when a retired officer makes a comment, but that it's really becomes this sort of privileged voice, like everyone listens to it. And that that could be a real concern because then if you do that, then you're also shaping political debate in a way that you might not have intended to. And then the other thing I would think is, and I think this is a real danger, and it's somewhat contradictory to the point I just made, but I'll make it, which is that increasingly what retired officer says just becomes sort of caught up in the news cycle and becomes fodder for partisan acrimony. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. And that's certainly something that's kind of gone through my mind and several things that I've written that, uh, you know, how, how, how will this be perceived? And for me, my way of doing that was kind of going back and making sure I had some rules in place that I was going to follow as I did this that, you know, I think that I could live with. And again, if somebody's going to come back and, and attack, that's fine. I have a thick enough skin to <laughs> absorb that. I've been, I've, I've been accused of worse here and so, uh, yeah. I can deal with all of that. I would just add, you know, you brought up the media and I tried in my time as the CENTCOM commander and to some extent as a SOCOM commander to have a very positive relationship with members of the press. And I think that I did. And I actually think I continue to have a good relationship with them. But the thing that I always thought about, and I kind of touched on it a little bit in my recent article that came out on the apolitical military, is this appreciation for the role of the different institutions in our democracy here, you know, with the role of the executive, the role of the Congress, the role of the media. I, I really do believe we are losing sight. The important roles that each of those institutions play in a vibrant, growing democracy. 
And, you know, it's, I've reflected on this, but the single most important class I took, I didn't recognize it at the time, when I was at West Point, was a course called American Institutions. Hmm. It was it was actually a probationary class, meaning that it was just getting introduced into the curriculum, but it looked really interesting. And it was really a class taught by a guy, an officer, who really had thought a lot about this and kind of instilled in us uh, an appreciation for the role that the different institutions in our society, that our government played and how they interact between each other. And I think it's a really important aspect. We're talking about the current state of affairs and civil-military relations, and I, I feel like we've almost started from this assumption that the, there's crisis. Dr. Brooks has brought up the important example of the number of generals who've gone on to political appointments and civilian roles, but where is there positive trends? Where's the kind of light that we're seeing here? I mean, in some ways, the fact that we're having this conversation, the fact that a, a piece like yours, Dr. Brooks, is, is being talked about, the fact that this conversation is open and in that civil military relations is making headline news these days, but is it all going the wrong direction? And, and where's kind of optimism? You know, in a crisis, there's always an opportunity, right? And the opportunity here is for regular Americans to be thinking about what the military is doing and about civil military relations and about norms and all of those things. And so, you know, there's been a lot of exposure to those issues, and that's been just terrific. I don't think it's all a negative trend here. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about General Milley's remarks at the National Defense University graduation there and his effort to bring this institution back into the proper balance in the wake of Lafayette Square. To me, that's a positive sign. And he did it. And he's, to my knowledge, hasn't absorbed any particular repercussions from that. He did what he needed to do. The institution allowed him to do that and move forward. And again, I think, you know, if we look in, in everyday life, we see the military military, whether it's helping with the COVID response or doing other things like this, playing a positive role in their communities for their states. Uh, and I think that continues to, to help the institution remain the very respective institution that it is. And so I don't think it's all negative here. And we certainly are hitting some inflection points, no doubt about it. The, the current environment is polarized and as it is, is bringing a lot of this to the forefront. But, you know, we've seen examples of where we've been able to navigate our way through that. And I think that's good. Well, General Vitell, we have a tradition here on the show, which is we like to ask our special guest, what general piece of advice would you give to young scholars, young policymakers, young service members as they begin their careers or get started on the second rocket boost of their careers? A couple different things there. First off, I think it's really important that people maintain their professional curiosity and continue to read, continue to actively reflect on topics like we've talked about here that deal with the military or the national security profession. You know, I think we have done a pretty good job of this over time. We've certainly seen periods, at least in, in my service, where you know we it was almost a renaissance in, in some ways of people really going in to learn about the profession and understand you know, what it is that we do. And I, and I think that's really important. So I think the first thing is maintaining the professional curiosity that keeps people interested in what they're doing and how they're serving the nation. But I, you know, I think the other thing is as people move forward don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what, what kind of got you where you are today. When you become a general officer, you know, you don't 
get a one hard drive switched off for the other. It really is about what is the values and the experiences and you know, the relationships and other things that you developed up to that point, I think become, you know, become just as important as you move forward. And so it, it really is about building a lifetime of experience and competence and then bringing that forward as you go, not trying to change yourself as you take on more rank or take on more positions. And usually people who move forward and get in new positions generally demonstrate good instincts and they should trust those instincts because they probably serve them well and it's probably the reason they're moving along. And so I always encourage people to, hey, trust your instincts. If it doesn't seem right, it probably isn't. Conversely, if it does, it probably is. And so you have to, I think, learn to operate a little bit instinctually here and trust your experience, trust what kind of got you there and you know, trust your own capabilities. Fantastic. Well, this has been an extremely insightful conversation. And General Vatel, Dr. Brooks, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And uh, thank you for joining the show today. Thanks. It's great to be with both of you. Thank you. Off the Page is a production of International Security, a quarterly journal edited and sponsored by the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School and published by the MIT Press. Our program is produced and edited by Morgan Kaplan, the executive editor of International Security. The associate producer and technical director is Ben Craig. Digital communications by me, Julie Belise. Production support by Carly Dimitri. Thanks to our intern, Kendrick Foster, for additional assistance. And special thanks to Hilan Kaplan for composing our theme music. Upcoming episodes and additional material for Off the Page can be found online at belfercenter.org slash off the page. All articles from the journal can be read at mitpressjournals.org slash is.